0: Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name's uh, Duncan Iverson. I'm Dean of the Faculty of Arts here at the University of Sydney, and it's a particular pleasure to uh, welcome you all here tonight and to welcome you to the first uh, Arts uh, Matters Forum, which is an initiative of the Faculty of Arts uh, at the University of Sydney, uh, which, of course, is home to the, the, the core humanities and social sciences disciplines uh, here. And tonight, in conjunction with Sydney Ideas, the United States Studies Centre, the University of New South Wales Faculty of Arts were discussing uh, why feminism matters. When the uh, former Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai uh, was asked famously about what the impact of the French Revolution had been, he said, well, it's too uh, early to tell. (laughs) And we might say something similar about the impact of feminism. Uh, Although the struggle for women's equality has made extraordinary gains over the past hundred years, many of the issues raised by feminist thought and practice cut to the core of the most important institutions and practices in our society, including education, work, family, social, and political life. So enormous gains have been made, but so much remains to be done. Now we've initiated this series as part of a commitment on the part of our faculty to bringing discussion of the most important ideas and issues of our time, out into the broader community and drawing on our distinguished uh, uh, faculty, uh, alumni, and visitors, and I think tonight's panel uh, epitomizes that uh, ambition. And I think it's safe to say that on any given day in the Faculty uh, of Arts, fundamental ideas are being discussed and dissected and examined and evaluated and written about from a range of different perspectives, and we've been doing this for over 150 years. Now, I did want to mention before, turning over to Louise, that we are particularly committed to, to, to than ever before to bringing more of you, our alumni, our supporters, friends, and people interested in, in ideas, not only back to campus for conversations like these, but also to, in a sense, bring the academy downtown as well and to engage with you in these conversations in a range of different ways and in a range of different places. So let me just say that there are two more Arts Matters forums uh, scheduled uh, for this year, why History Matters is slated for uh, July 26, and why Media Matters, which is marking, among other other things, the 10th anniversary of our Department of Media and Communications, is slated for later on uh, in the spring, and we'll be able to confirm that date soon enough. I want to encourage you to, to stay in touch with us by checking our website, but also perhaps even joining the Sydney University Arts Association, which is free, uh, so it's a bargain at half the price, uh, and that way we can keep an ev- even closer contact with you uh, and work uh, with you in the months and years ahead. And you can find more information about that uh, in the foyer. So without uh, further ado, I'm very pleased to uh, welcome you here tonight, and I'd, I'm very happy to turn over to uh, Louise Chapelle, who's a former colleague, sadly, of ours, but now, of course, uh, a, a very distinguished future fellow and associate professor at the University of New South Wales, and most importantly, the inspiration and convener of tonight's panel, Louise. Thanks, Duncan.
1: Well, thank you, Duncan, and uh, it is, it's a good thing for the Faculty of Arts to have Duncan there as Dean, I think. As feminists all know, um, you don't get things done without supportive men around, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing uh, how you manage that in the years to come, Duncan. Um, (laughs) uh, The convener of um, Sydney Ideas, Meredith Hall and I, have been talking for quite a number of years now about putting a panel together such as this. And our talk finally became a reality um, recently when uh, a number of prominent feminists uh, had agreed to come to Sydney to attend a workshop on the question of gender and political institutions, that I'm co-convening this week with Fiona Mackay from the University of Edinburgh and Georgina Whalen from Sheffield University. And we are very fortunate tonight to have together on one panel some of the leading academics and commentators from the US, the UK and here in Australia in the area of gender and politics. So let me introduce each of them to you. From the United States we have Professors Mary Katzenstein And Karen Beckwith. Karen Beckwith uh, is the Flora Stone Mather Professor of Political Science at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And her most recent book, Political Women and American Democracy, examines women as citizens, voters, activists, candidates, and uh, legislators in the US political system. Mary Katzenstein is the Stephen and Evelyn Millman Professor of American Studies and Professor of Government at Cornell University. Mary's written extensively about political activism and social movements in the US, Europe and South Asia, and her wonderful book, Faithful and Fearless, um, won the American Political Science Association's Victoria Shuck Award for the best book in gender and politics. From the United Kingdom we welcome Fiona Mackay, who is a Senior Lecturer in Politics and the Director of the Graduate School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. Her recent books include Women, Politics and Constitutional Change and a forthcoming book on Gender, Politics and Institutions. Fiona's been active in the 50-50 campaign for gender parity in political and public life in the run-up to devolution in the UK and is a close watcher of the uh, forthcoming British election. From Australia we have uh, Sue Goodwin, who is a senior lecturer here at Sydney University in uh, Policy Studies in the Faculty of Education and Social Work. Sue's written extensively about women's participation in public policy in Australia, and her forthcoming book, The Good Mother, explores representations of mothers in contemporary Australian social and political contexts. Sue currently holds a Thompson Fellowship at the University of Sydney in recognition of her important scholarship. Our last panellist tonight is an alumni of uh, Sydney University, um, Dr Rebecca Huntley, who's a writer and a social researcher of the University of Sydney, where she gained a PhD uh, on the the topic of women and ALP politics. She's the director of the Ipsos-McKay Report, Australia's longest-running social trends report, and the author of Eating Between the Lines and the World According to Why. Our forum's chair tonight is someone that's probably well known to many of us, Lisa Forrest. Lisa is uh, well known as being a former Olympic swimmer, but also for having an extensive career as a TV and radio broadcaster, also an actor and writer. Her most recent book, Boycott, was published by uh, ABC Books. So before I just hand over to the panel, I'd just like to thank uh, a number of different organisations and people who have made tonight's uh, event possible, Uh, firstly to the University of Sydney, especially the Faculty of Arts and the International Program Development Fund, the United States Studies Centre, which has um, supported the visits of uh, both our American uh, uh, visitors, the Faculty of Arts at the University of New South Wales, the British Academy and the Australian Academy of Social Sciences, as well as the Universities of Edinburgh and Sheffield. So thanks to you all for coming, and uh, enjoy the discussion. Over
2: to you. Yes, thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Louise. Um, We will be speaking, we'll be having a chat for about 45 minutes. We've been in the green room beforehand, and I didn't get many questions in, so I'm pretty sure that the discussion will be a pretty, it was a fabulous one in the green room, so it'll be even better out here tonight. We're warmed up, we had to wake up our our American guests who've flown a long way, so we thank them very much for coming with us tonight, um, for being here tonight. We've got um, 45 minutes to chat. And then we'll, have, we'll open the discussion up to, to you. And we'll have about 30 minutes to ask questions. There are two microphones here, which we can barely see. But we're hoping when you're standing behind them, we'll see you easily. And, um, and we ask you to come down to the microphone when you want to ask a question. The event is being filmed by ABC TV, by Big Ideas. And um, that is on, Big Ideas are on ABC1 on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at eleven AM or online at any time at abc.net.au slash big ideas. But I'll give you that information again um, at the end of the session. Um, and as it is being um, as it is being recorded, we do ask that you come down to the microphone and not actually call out any questions because it makes it too difficult. To record and also for our panelists to hear. So, um, welcome, ladies. Thank you very much for coming. I was saying to uh, to everyone outside, my introduction to feminism was 1975. I was 10. It was the International Year of Women was coming up. The excitement of that that event and that moment, the hopes that we had, the responsibility, I suppose, as um, as a young girl, as being the first generation, and guess what we now call the second wave, was sort of there, we could feel it all, but I mostly remember the song, Helen Reddy's I Am Woman. <laughs> and I remember it because my mother used to play it very loudly while she was doing the vacuuming. <laughs> now, we've come a long way since then, of course, but tonight we'll be discussing how we've come along whether there are some places that we've gained more lost less lost more we'll see what happens as we come out of the discussion tonight as a way of starting i thought i might just put it to our panel to give their eye views or their views on where they think feminism is at the moment in their country and what role it has in shaping the political agenda and we'll start karen beckwith with you <laughs> hello well, thank Thanks. you so much hello and it's
3: such a pleasure to be here and i do want to thank um, uh, Sydney Ideas and, and the University of Sydney and especially Louise Chappelle. It's lovely to be here. This is my first time, so I'm very excited and very happy to be here, so thank you all. Um, so let me just say that... Um, where, where feminism. We start? Well, it's where do we start? Where feminism is in the United States, I think it's much healthier than might be appreciated, and I think there's a lot that is... Um, under what the media might see. So let me just say that, that there are four ways in which I think feminism matters and is fairly strong. The first is symbolically. So the political science research indicates that where there are women in office, women in those states, um, evidence in uh, increased levels of information about politics, increased levels of interest in politics. And so there's a lifting element that has to do just with that symbolism. There are lots of different ways we might think about the symbolism of women in politics and, and, and what feminism might do. So it, it has mattered in terms of establishing a very important symbolic base. Secondly, it seems to matter in terms of um, public policy, and there's, there's some, the, the literature is not completely conclusive on this in the US, but at the state legislative level, there does seem to be some evidence that the more women there are in the state legislature, the more um, woman-friendly um, the legislation is in, in, in terms of what states might do in terms of childcare provisions Um, health policies within the state, educational policies, the institution of full-day kindergarten, things like this. It also, it seems to me, matters, and and, and again, this has to do with feminism and not just women in politics, but feminism, it seems to me, has raised issues of women's presence in powerful institutions that has to do with legitimacy issues. Um, One of the things I think feminism has done in the United States is it has raised the question of why are there not more women, and it's raised it in many different venues, and I think that's been a really important contribution that we shouldn't take for granted. And then the fourth is um, in terms of discourse, and in many ways this might be on the face of it, the weakest. But one of the things that we do see in the United States, elected members of Congress, men and women speaking in inclusive, in gender inclusive language, so talking about men and women. And this is this is uh, it, um, for for my daughter, who's who's almost 22 now. Um, this is commonplace. This has been her lifetime. But this is a big change to be to always. Ex- use language in a way that expresses the presence of women. And so the lack of invisibility of women at the legislative level, in private corporations, in the university, um, this, is, this is a major contribution. So those are sort of the four ways in terms of uh, symbolic, um, in terms of policy, in terms of legitimacy, and in terms of discourse.
2: Mary Katzenstein, would you agree? Um.
4: Yes, <laughs> oh, thank you. I always agree with Karen. <laughs> Let me just, say, just join Karen in saying thank you to Sydney Ideas. It's exciting because you can get very introspective and inward-looking in the United States, and so it's really wonderful to be here and hear about feminism in other country contexts, and you know, we spend our day saying we'd like some of that um, because there's a lot that happens elsewhere that's not happening in the United States, and that's sort of my theme. So maybe... Um, Let me make three points about the bad, the good slash bad, depending on your perspective, and and the good. So let me start with the bad, uh, which is that um, America is probably aptly described as, um, and this would be true for gender and politics, as American exceptionalism. So what does that mean in the context of gender and politics? What it means is that um, the market rules. So what do we have? I mean, we have very little in the way of public policies that support the family, that support gender equality at the national level. We don't have paid parental leave. We have very little in the way of childcare. We have very little federal support for reproductive rights. So the, the rule um, in, in the context of gender and politics in the United States is the market rules, and if you want it uh, and can pay for it, you've got it. So that's the bad, and that's seriously bad. The good slash bad, depending on where you sit or what your perspective is, is that we do support a lot of policies that are concerned with women victims of violence. Mm-hmm. And yet, what we, the way in which we do that is to support very punitive responses. So we criminalize um, the abuser in many ways, and we criminalize the father who doesn't pay child support. And that may be, at least in my perspective, sometimes very counterproductive. But in some respects, it's good. In some respects, it's not good. What's the good? Um, (laughs) I will get there. You know, I think, well, for one thing, Sarah Palin is not one heartbeat away from the presidency. (laughs) You know, the good to be very personal about it is that when I graduated from college, which is about the time that you were born, um, there were two women in the Senate and 12, I mean, two women, yes, two women in the Senate and 12 women in the House. Now those two women have turned into 17, and the 12 women in the House have turned into 73. So that feels like, you know, I don't know the names of everybody in the US House of Representatives. (laughs) That does feel like progress. And I guess um, the, the point on which I would end is that despite all of this, despite the problems, feminism is still very active in the United States. And I think it's mostly active in the locales in which people live. It's active in place. So there are a lot of active associations, for instance, in the church, the Catholic church, which I spent some time studying, in the U.S. military, in the nonprofit Mm -hmm. sector, in the arts, in orchestras. I mean, just everywhere you look Mm -hmm. in the workplace, there's some kind of activism um, aimed at making things better for women in those situations. And just to end with one quick example, we've been having this healthcare debate and act, women um, religious in the United States weighed in on this healthcare debate. So, the 55,000 women represented by certain peak associations said that they thought the healthcare debate, which covered abortion, was good for women, especially for low income women. So, there was one crucial vote um, that involved a Democrat from Stupak, from Michigan, and he said um, he was weighing whether he should vote with the Democrats for healthcare or not. And he said um, he was not inclined to vote for this health care bill. He certainly wasn't going to listen to the nuns. Um, He was going to listen to the the men in the church because they could speak with authority. Well, ultimately, he just today um, voted for the health care bill. And there was a column in the Washington Post by Maureen Dowd in which she said, you know, these days, these days particularly, if you had to choose between the priests and the papacy on the one hand, or women religious on the other hand, I'd go with the gals. So you know, I think there's real power in feminism these days in the United States.
2: Fiona Mackay, we'll, we'll leave the Aussies for a moment and we'll go to the UK. What's happening right, with feminism
5: there? <laughs> again to echo um, my thanks uh, to Sydney Ideas. This is a, a, a sort of a wonderful opportunity to, to share some experiences. Uh, I'm, my comments are going to be shorter and more informal uh, at this stage. And I suppose I would say that the signs are very mixed in the UK about where feminism is. Um, there is an apparent resurgence of feminism, but I don't know whether that's just that stuff's getting above the radar again. So there are uh, a lot of books have just come out very recently um, looking at the state of uh, uh, of women's equality, looking at women's lives and and so on. And there's a lot of activity going on, young women in the blogosphere. So there's a lot of cyber activity uh, going on, which again would suggest that there are green shoots uh, uh, and so on. And we've seen, for example, things like really veteran organisations like the Fawcett Society, which is one of the original suffrage societies. Its membership has has gone up 25% in the last 12 months and its newsletter has uh, increased its subscribers by about fourfold. So all of that is is, is going on. We've got a general election which, unless I've Missed something, still hasn't quite been called, but has to take place before, I think it's May the 6th, so it is uh, imminent. And women's representation, for the first time, is a sort of an accepted good across the board. So actually, all the political parties... um, are talking about uh, women's representation as a goal and are, are, are fielding probably more candidates in winnable seats than they have done before. Particularly the Conservative Party who have traditionally been real laggards in this respect. You know, They've, they've had a woman Prime Minister, a woman leader of the party, but have not been uh, engaged in encouraging women. So if you like women's representation is, is seen as good across the board. So that's, again, a kind of positive sign. On the other hand, the, the other kind of great feature of the, of the general election this time round is that the wives have been called out. So, in fact, most of the media attention at the moment is uh, Gordon Brown's wife, Sarah, versus uh, David Cameron's wife, who's been nicknamed Sam Cam, who has just <laughs> entered into the, into the fray. Um, what kind of versus? Are they kind
6: of... Are they kind of <laughs> Jelly wrestling? Um, Well, I'm sure. This is
5: hopefully not our kid, Jelly wrestling. Heresy, heresy there. Um, So basically, both of them being used to feminize, uh, not feminize, to humanize, perhaps also to feminize um, their partners. Um, so, I think we've got a lot of mixed.
2: Which is old fashioned, really, is it? Old well, it's fashion. something I mean, we it's haven't seen fashion. before.
5: I think it's quite, we, we might talk about this later, it's quite kind of presidential, sort of. They're, mm. they're sort of moving into the, the role of sort of first ladies and first ladies elect. Mm. Both very high powered professional women. Um, and it may be, and I may ask this, the Michelle Obama effect, <laughs> which I think is, is quite a mixed blessing as okay. well.
2: Well, we'll get to politics specifically and first ladies in just a moment. But I should, should ask, who wants to go first of our Australian Sue Goodwin? Where are we? Would you say when it comes to feminism in Australia at the moment? Well,
7: first, I'd like to say we have these gracious guests, so I would like to say it's a pleasure to. Have you. <laughs> <laughs> gender divisions and we still have areas of gender ordering. Um, uh, So for example, in relation to gender divisions, Australia has one of the most uh, gender segregated workforces of all the OECD countries. So women tend to work with women and men tend to work with men. So if we're thinking about women in politics, or we're thinking about politics generally, I think we, we need to ask a question about how degendered gendered has politics become? How much is politics something that both men and women do? And for me, this is a very important question around what choices males and females have. Uh, in research on areas like nursing and social work, what we've found is over the last 10 years, they've become more feminized, and masculine occupations have actually become more masculinized. So, uh, you know, young people in our research, young young women will say things like, oh, you know, my parents were really happy that I became a social worker or I did social work, but they wouldn't have been happy if my brother did because you don't get paid enough. <laughs> <laughs> now, why aren't, why aren't they thinking that? So, um, feminism has been very important in the area of choice, I think, and even in, in our research we found uh, both men and women who have been exposed to feminism really um, pick apart those very naturalised assumptions about what women are and what men are and they're able to challenge some of those fixed ideas and I think this is important because it gives them more choice about what they end up doing uh, and, and hopefully give people choices around whether or not to be a politician. In terms of Gender ordering, which is the kind of hierarchical valuing of masculine things over feminine things. I mean, we certainly see that to be the case in terms of um, levels of income, amount of power, amount of autonomy men have in comparison to women. In my political analysis, I like to always ask, what's the problem represented to be? And I think... uh, Perhaps it's time we moved away from representing the problem as women's underrepresentation in terms of income, uh, and thinking perhaps of the problem in terms of men's overrepresentation. A little bit contentious there. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, I mean, even when you just look at the figures in this way, you think about things quite differently. So, at the moment. of all MPs in Australia are men. 90% of all board positions are held by men. 74% of senior public servants are men. 16 out of 20 cabinet ministers are men. Men earn 67% of all income, Uh, and so on and so forth. And when we think about it, in this way, in terms of men having to move out of some of these positions or give up some of the resources, I think we think of slightly different strategies. And I, I kind of joke, you know, instead of having women in leadership courses, we could have men in mediocrity courses.
3: <laughs>
7: <laughs> but I re- in reality, I think. Well, I know if you could lead them, (laughs) they could move out of positions of great power into being these, run these courses. It's a great redeployment scheme. (laughs) Um, But no, I mean, I think, well, things, for example, like, um, you know, changing the nature of um, occupations, which would enable men to move out of them, enable men to take on more family work or uh, to not feel they have to be so devoted to these long hour, long careers. And I think they're kind of institutional changes that all of my colleagues can give us suggestions on, as well as the kind of cultural changes that need to be put in place around these ideas of choice and equality.
6: Rebecca? Um, Sometimes I despair about how far feminism has come when I sit in the research groups I do and people talk about bad traffic and climate change and they blame working women for that, working mothers. (laughs) Um, And I despair when I hear... I despair when I hear... Yeah, obesity is a good one. I despair when I hear people describe single women as deliberately barren or talk about women's virginity as a special gift. I then think about (laughs) hurling something at the screen... But then I also think, so that, that's, that's where we need to go. Where we've come is still significant. I think about my grandmother who came to this country when she was nine from Italy, was educated only till 11, was required to be married and have children and had no options. And I think we have made progress. It doesn't mean that we excuse the uh, the Neanderthals that <laughs> decide to, to some of them in the federal parliament, but it means that we need to... Um, Uh, reflect on where we've come and use it as strength for the future.
2: Okay. We'll go back to politics specifically because we've mentioned the um, first lady situation in the UK and we've seen, we've all watched here, of course, even the the US election with uh, the sort of the opposites, if you like, Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin. I don't know if they're opposites, but certainly on opposite sides, coming from different places, certainly, to um, be... Um, very prominent in both campaigns, and of course we've also had Michelle Obama. I mean Michelle Obama, Theresa Reign in Australia playing her role, I suppose, as first lady. So let's could could um, would you like to speak about the um, well the Sarah Palin um, moment, I suppose, in the UK, which, uh, in the US, which continues with her book, and where are with where Hillary is at, and what happened in that campaign.
3: Well, it's so tempting just to start with Sarah Palin. So, <laughs> <Stop it. laughs> so let let me give two two positive mentions first. When um, the first is to John McCain that he selected her. That was a bold move and it was a brave move. And um, you know, kudos to him for doing it. I think he chose the wrong woman, but there were only at the time, I think three, as there still are now, um, female Republican governors of states. Um, few women in the Senate, none of whom could be spared. So the pool from which he had to draw was small, um, and he didn't draw the strongest fish, (laughs) but good for him. Um, The second is when um, Sarah Palin was announced before the convention, but there was a press conference, and I remember being at the American Political Science Association meetings, watching her on TV, surrounded by my horrified colleagues, and um, she gave a nice little shout out to Hillary Clinton. Someone who had gone before. So two good things for Sarah Palin. Um, So a couple of things to say about Sarah Palin. I think she's fascinating. And I think she's fascinating because she enacts masculinity in a very feminized and also sexualized form. She is um, very strong. She's very bold. She speaks out. She uses languages stand up for, stand up against, um, speak out for. Um, She talks about hunting, she talks about sport, she talks about playing basketball. I forget what her nickname was on the basketball team. Um, It wasn't the Terminator, but it was something very vigorous and fierce. And I think that's part of her attraction and fascination. Um, And in addition, she has a large family, and she appears to be happily married, and she certainly presents herself that way. And I think that allows her to come across both as um, interesting and reassuring... Um, and also representative um, of a particular segment in the, uh, in the United States that sees itself now um, not very well represented. And I just wanna say something in regard to what Mary said. Um, I really do see the feminist moment in the United States as being located in an increasing um, moment of, of unrecognized class tension, um, economic inequalities are now about the levels of the early 1900s. They're very serious. This is due to a variety of things. Real wages have been declining since 1974. Um, We can be happy that women now make, on average, about 79% of what men make, but men now make so little that it's not the full victory that we might have hoped for. and certainly the Bush tax cuts had a lot to do with redistributing wealth upwards to the top 5%, and in fact, concentrated at the top 1 100th of a percent. Their income has risen. It's wealth, it's not earned income. Um, and this, I think, positions feminism very differently, and I think it's also given Sarah Palin her moment um, as, as some kind of... Um, Symbolic presence of someone recognizing that something's wrong, being able to say something about it, um, but not in that particular way.
2: And is it saying something that's useful? that is it going to help
3: women? Um, probably not. But there's something else I just want to say, and then, and then I promise I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet for a while. Um, Sarah Palin's rise has come at a time when women's representation in the Republican Party has plummeted. There are now fewer women. Um, representing the Republican Party in state legislatures than there have been in any time since 1980. Um, There has been a decline in the last two congressional elections for the House of Representatives in Republican women elected to the House. Uh, Republican women are a distinct minority now, and they always have been, but this is really now something that's quite interesting that I'm sort of paying attention to. So here's Sarah Palin. I won't say she's on the rise. She's, she's now prominent. Um, I give her no chance of public office. We can talk about that later. But it's happening at a time when the Republican Party is literally purging itself of, of female candidates and elected women. Mm. That's
6: quite a common phenomenon, too, is that, is that you can have, for example, in New South Wales, you have a, a female premier and a female deputy premier, but New South Wales is, has the lowest percentage of women in Parliament. So that kind of achievement of women masks a broader, um, I think, uh, bot- bottleneck in terms of women being able to do anything at, at even just the MP level, regardless of what's happening with women more generally. It's the Oprah effect, you know, very much. That kind of, like, we look at the stars and we don't necessarily look at what's happening
8: underneath.
2: But isn't that happening, that's not... Um specific to one party in in any of the countries it would seem to me when John Howard came in a lot of women in that a lot was made of the women that he brought into parliament and yet things didn't change for women there are more women as you said in US politics and yet at a real fundamental level um, they are not supported in in the ways unless it pays as you say Uh, is that the same in the UK Fiona would you say it
5: Well, you had the situation, the famous situation of Margaret Thatcher with no other Mm. woman in the cabinet. Mm. Um, And although Margaret Thatcher clearly, a bit like Sarah Palin, there was a symbolic importance uh, to Margaret Thatcher in terms of of feminism and role models. And and if you like, making it. There
6: was no other woman.
5: There was no other woman in the cabinet. No.
6: And what was the percentage of... Was there an increase in percentage of women in no. the Torah? No, no. Right. no,
5: There were more no.
3: women in the Labour Party when Thatcher was in office and there were women in the Conservative Party. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And
2: someone but like Hillary Clinton who yeah. would have represented or would have come in, with, or when she, at least when she was the two-for-one as Bill's wife, with health care as her big thing, you would think would be someone who was going to make a difference for women and yet she didn't win a lot of popularity with her stand. Did she, Mary?
4: Well, I think she did. I mean, she had the majority of the women's vote, um, mm-hmm. regrettably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll say some, that I think Hillary Clinton's campaign taught us a, a very important lesson. Karen has captured very well the Sarah Palin phenomenon that you can come from Wasilla, um, Alaska, and be you a know, potential vice president. But I think we really learned the most from Hillary Clinton's campaign, and that is that we don't need to worry anymore about whether there is a woman is competent or a woman is qualified, or, you know, can a woman do the job? Yeah. Clearly, even for those of us who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, she was a very impressive candidate. Mm-hmm. And she, 65% of the American public said that here was a woman who was experienced enough, knowledgeable enough mm-hmm. to hold the office of the President of the United States. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we have really moved in the direction of saying that women are now competent enough to do the job. And that's, that did not used to be the assumption, though.
2: Is it the assumption in Australia, do you think, Sue,
6: Rebecca? <laughs> I think, I mean, if you look, if you're to believe the polls that have come recently about people thinking about Julia Gillard being Prime Minister, I think there's no question about competency. And in some ways that, that's mirrored, I think, a changing public perception of, of girls being smart. <laughs> of, you know, girls are smart, they, they're, they're, they can be ambitious and all these other th- all these other kinds of things. So we ask, but I have to say... Politics is not a meritocracy. Look at the politicians that we have. It's not <laughs> necessarily about competency. And the thing that concerns me a little bit about, from a little bit about the polls that say um, Julie Gillard would be just as good a Prime Minister if not better than Kevin Rudd, is occasionally I wonder whether some pa- those polls measure people's desire to be seen to be somebody who thinks a woman is competent rather than when they actually get there will they vote for her? But I think you're right, we have definitely changed and when you can look, as we do 30 years back to the research we did 30 years ago, there is this kind of view that, yes, women are up to the task, they're smart, they're hard-working, are all those other kinds of things.
2: There is that, but isn't there also, sort of what we've talked about as well then, is the media uh, pre- representation of women, whether it be Sarah Palin or Hillary or the First Lady's Michelle Obama. Would, would we like to speak about that and how that affects feminism or at least the... the the, the way that we are then represented or the way that different women are represented? Because it seems like um, in politics then women can be used even though they're not necessarily able to make the big changes that we need to be
6: made. They stand out, I think, you know, they, they stand out uh, as um, being slightly different. I kind of wonder too why there's so much discussion about that perhaps what a woman, what a woman's politician, what a woman politician might be wearing or their hair colour. It's because they don't have the, you know, rel- the cheap suit, bad haircuts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of uniform that so many poli- the male politicians have. I mean, they've got bad haircuts too. They've got terrible dye jobs. They've got bad suits, but nobody talks about it. But I think I think it, that I think that is again changing. There is mu- there is, is less. Um, there's still some discussion, but not as much as you would expect. Certainly not kind of the levels that it was, let's say, in the 80s. It was particularly
5: bad then. Fiona? Well, we had a female Home Secretary, and the press was absolutely obsessed with her cleavage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, over the last sort of 10, 15 years, I mean, women have now actually been in just about every... Uh, one of the, the kind of big offices of state, apart from... Um, Chancellor of the Exchequer and I don't think we've had a Defence Secretary of State for Defence yet, but we've had a Home Secretary which we haven't had before, we've had a Foreign Secretary that we haven't had before, but the the media is quite schizophrenic Mm -hmm. because they don't tend to spend a lot of time um, saying that a woman is incompetent. I mean, I think there is a kind of sense, oh yeah, 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 that's fine, but there's still an inordinate amount of time spent on um, female politicians appearances. And this Home Secretary also, she was one of the problems, one of her particular problems during the expenses scandal, which we might talk about a bit later and how that's transformed UK politics, is that her husband had uh, hired a pornographic movie and then charged it to her parliamentary expenses.
3: So
6: really she should, there should be articles about that she's got bad taste in men. Mary, you were going to say
4: something? Um, well, that just made me think of the attention that was paid to Sarah Palin's wardrobe and, and who paid for it. Um, and many feminists in the United States thought that Sarah Palin got a raw deal, even when they were Obama supporters. And, and to some extent, she did in the mainstream press. I mean, some one prominent um, interviewer asked her what um, journals or what, what her reading material was to keep informed. And this. Um, People said, well, they didn't ask George Bush, you know, what he read to keep informed, and that probably would have been a useful question, too. (laughs) But I actually think the issue is not so much anymore the mainstream press. I think the, the media environment has changed, and I think the problem is now the blogosphere. I mean, anything goes on a blog. And so, and the and it's contagious. So you can say, you know, the nastiest, most unacceptable things on a blog, and know that um, soon lots of people will be talking about it. And that it doesn't help men either, but I think women are particularly susceptible.
7: Mm. I also think this kind of attention to what women look like—it's it, not just women in politics. It's—it's it's another example of the gender divisioning in our society and I think women use what they can and uh, are used in ways that they can be. And so where you have this unequal power relations, women's beauty becomes almost a form of capital or, or the way we dress becomes a form of capital that you can use as a resource in social situations. So until we, you know, kind of degender that at every other level it's not surprising that it emerges in political analysis and political critique that when we see a woman we think about what she's wearing you know we do that when we go into the shop with the real retail assistant you know we see a woman and read her as somebody who dresses in a particular way and carries themselves in a particular way so do we
2: accept that and then just move on and not worry about the fact that those things will be concentrated on and and not get certainly not worry in terms of feminism what that's saying about it
4: we dress better <laughs> <laughs> so we can't be attacked
2: mary can i ask you about um you you look specifically at areas like the military and like the church when it comes to feminism what What uh, you all might like to comment on is that the 70s, that original or the second wave, if you call it that, there seemed to be a sort of united front of women moving forward. Now, maybe that's a child's perception, of course, and and what you had in the media, whereas now it seems that there are areas where women are doing their own particular work in their own particular area because the united front is, is, I don't know whether it's divide and conquer or whether they just have to work specifically. Is that what you... Obviously, they're making gains. they're, They're being made in different ways.
4: Well, I think, I mean, there may be some disadvantages to working in one's home terrain, but I think on the whole, you know, many problems are local problems. So if you're a woman in the military, I mean, right now, women's reality in the military far outstretches the possibilities that the rules provide for. So there's a rule against women being co-located in ground combat. Well, women medics are there all all over the place, Mm -hmm. even though the rules prohibit it. If you care about being recognized for the risk that you're taking, you have to fight that at the local level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I do think that it's, it's really a very, one of the great strengths of feminism in the United States to be able to take up the issues that affect you where you work, where you live, and organize with other women around those issues. But, you know, would it be good for women in the United States to have paid parental leave? And that has to be a federal legislation, a federal policy. Without a federal policy, you know, you can't make progress at the local level. Mm-hmm. So there are pros and there are cons. Mm-hmm. But Mary, when does that organic,
6: you know, women just getting on and doing it regardless of whether they're told to do it, when does that um, mobilise to change the rules, do you think? What's the consequence? So what you're saying is in that case, women are there, they're doing something not supposed to be there, but they're doing their job and doing it. What's going to bring about the actual change at the institutional mm-hmm. level?
4: I think two things one is um, need I mean if the institution needs women 's votes or if the institution needs women in combat, the institution will change i mean don't ask don 't tell is now changing in the United States. Why? Because we need manpower. Um, we need every person we can get so some of it is institutional imperative, but some of it is women 's pressure it's very difficult if you're a priest um, in you know In the parish, and you're looking at women who are very politicized, very active, and you're seeing them Sunday after Sunday. There, you know, there may not be a need to change your view or to change the way you talk, but it's very hard to look women in the face and continue to say some of the things that has have traditionally been said.
6: <laughs> no, no, no. no. I really all know that. I was brought up a Catholic;
3: those numbers can
2: be Rebecca, what about uh, you? are seen as the uh, Gen
6: Y expert in many areas. You can write one book in Australia and be an expert. It's appalling. Really. <laughs> we can talk, about, <laughs> you can talk about that, but anyway, I guess one no, of the uh,
2: I'll 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 trot out one of the other yeah. um, you know cliches is that uh, the Gen Y girls aren't interested in being called feminists. That they see feminism as something that has worked against them.
6: Um, well, I suppose I'd say two things to that. The first is the, the accusation amongst some um, women who came to leadership positions during the 70s in the, in the second wave that their grand- daughters and granddaughters aren't feminists. So I would often say to them, well, don't assume everybody in your generation was a feminist either. It's not over. Let's not get a bit too nostalgic. I know you smoke a lot of pot then, but really, <laughs> honestly, let's, be a little, let's, let's, let's focus on the real memory that perhaps not everybody was um, marching in the streets. But I, I first, the second thing I'd say is that when you actually talk to young women, they may not necessarily attach the label feminist to them. And, and let's be clear that there are still young women who are comfortable with that label, Um, But all of those kind of central tenets, broadly, of feminism, they try and live their life about that. And they're also kind of aware, and especially as they get older, of gender inequality. So they're not at that level of, oh, women are equal now and it's all fine. They're highly aware, they're highly educated, and generally when you do talk to those that are politically active, they tend to centre their feminist activism within a broader politics of, let's say, globalisation or concern about what's happening in de- the developing world. And that's a really good thing, to place feminism within a broader... Well, not so much broader, but a, a, po- a political context that isn't just about gender. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't really subscribe to that view that no. young women are all wanting to be playboy bonnies and, you know, bounce around the stage and, you know, gen- you know feminism doesn't matter anymore. No.
3: And there's actually some data to support that for the U.S. as well. So there's a a CBS um, New York Times poll that was done in 2005, so this is after the second election of George W. Bush. Um, And um, women and men were asked about the impact of the women's movement on their life chances and has it made things better. And there were supermajorities of agreement that, yes, it has made life better for women, and that was consistent across all age groups, with the exception of women over the age of 65. Um, who may have been actually articulating the reality for them that it came too late. But among young women, high appreciation for the impact of the women's movement on the life chances. And then there was a question about whether or not you identified yourself as a feminist. And only 25% of women um, responding to that agreed that, yes, they did identify themselves as feminists. But when the question was changed to the following with a preceding sentence, um... Most, something like, most people think of feminism as meaning political, economic, and social opportunities and equality for women. Um, would you consider yourself yes. a feminist? And then supermajority, 69% mm. of women responding yes. Um, and so it, that, I, I think that does reflect, in fact, fairly strong appreciation and, uh, and understanding, and again among uh, sort of all generations of women, that feminism has had a positive impact.
6: So what they're rejecting is not the term feminist is the term feminist as defined by the media mm, as some mm, hysterical, mm. unshaved, male-hating, crazy person who wants to put their child in like a, like a Colet Bureau-run childcare <laughs> 24 hours a day. I mean, really. I mean, and why would you not reject that? Yeah.
2: Fiona, what about in the UK? Oh,
5: sorry, do you want to know? Yes, yes. Um, I haven't seen any uh, studies about that, so a lot of what I would say would be anic- anecdotal, really. Um, I think feminism has always punched above its weight in the sense of there's a lot of feminist ideas now out there in the water almost, but it's still a very common refrain to say I'm not a feminist. Mm. But... um, I did some research with, um, and it was with female uh, politicians at the local level in the 1990s, and I asked two questions. I asked one question about equal opportunities, and I asked... Um, oh, no, it wasn't equal opportunities. I asked one f- question about feminism and one question about the women's movement. And only about 25% or so would say that they were feminist, but nearly all of them felt they were a part of the women's movement. And they saw it as, as some kind of cultural resource, um, and also a kind of an historic trajectory. So you had women sort of talking about, "Oh yes, I see myself in a line going back to the suffragettes." and uh, so they, they actually saw you know, and my mother was a feminist, but, but they didn't um, want the label, but they saw themselves as part of a, a kind of a movement, a collectivity, a kind of cultural phenomenon. so
2: and the um, the green shoots that you were talking about at the beginning, mm. are they being reflected in the lead up to this UK election to the things that women want or need? In you know, are those issues being uh, looked at particularly through uh, with both parties? Or?
5: I don't know. I've got a little bit of a problem about you know what seemed to be women's issues in the run up to the election because I think the number one issue uh, for for probably all Everyone. voters in the run-up to the British general election, is, is the economy and the recession and the, you know, the huge amount of public debt uh, and so on. So, I mean, I think there are just a whole range of issues that both men and women are interested in. The polling data seems to suggest that you've got kind of subgroups. Um, so we don't have a very strong gender gap as, as you have in the, in the states, but you have certain subgroups where a, a kind of gender gap builds up. And you've got that younger women are more interested or value more highly issues to do with education more than the general electorate. And older women prioritise health care uh, more than the general uh, electorate. And then beyond that, I I think you've really got, um, you know, there are lots of different issues about welfare, about the economy, Mm. etc., etc., which both men and women are interested in.
2: And do you have the issues of parental leave that we've been discussing that, that the U.S. Well, has... we have
5: parental leave. Not, not a huge amount at the moment. One of the things that, that happened after the Labour government came uh, to power was that it signed up to the, the social chapter uh, in the European mm-hmm. Union, which the Conservatives had, had opted out of. Um, so um, at first, uh, young fathers got two weeks unpaid leave mm-hmm. and they now get two weeks paid leave. At 90, I think it's 90% of salary, although it might be a flat rate. Um, but both parties have got quite progressive packages on the table uh, to do with parental leave rather than paternal leave. I got that right? <laughs> yeah, that was I same parental before. So um, you're now going to be able to um, switch leave between mother and father. So in the UK... Um, Women get six weeks paid at 90%. They then get 39 weeks paid at a kind of flat rate. And they're allowed up to 52 weeks with the right to go back to their job. And both parties have said that um, they're not planning to increase that that 39 weeks, but they're going to allow it to be divided up between uh, men and women. So the, the the... the Labour Party, and actually, it's, um, it, there's already been some legislation passed, but it hasn't been enacted yet. Uh, mean that up to 26, a man could take up to 26 of those weeks if the the mother has returned to work, and the Conservatives have gone one kind of further. So they're actually saying um, that actually you could simultaneously take up to 26 weeks,
6: both the father and the mother uh-huh. together. Oh.
5: Yeah, yeah.
7: So it's. The welfare state, or by the employer, so it's social security. Mm. Well, the flat rate is
5: the flat rate is, is. but but there is there is an employer cost as well. I think on the ninety percent, the first few weeks of it. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area because I didn't realise it was really interesting until about a week a week ago. When when you arrived in Australia, somebody from the the Sydney (laughs) Herald sort of said,
9: "Oh, we don't have that."
5: Oh, oh, better. I'll ask
2: one more question. But while we're, we're just speaking, it is 25 past seven. If you have questions that you would like to ask of the panel, then please make your way forward to the, to the microphones, and we'll take your question. And while we're doing that, or while anyone would like to come up to the mic, how did we get it wrong? We were discussing this before. I mean, in the US, UK, US, there isn't it isn't a welfare state. In Australia, we have had all sorts of help welfare-wise, and yet we stopped at maternity leave or at any sort of parental leave. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> how is it that we're in... Is it Australia and US about the only countries in the
5: OECD that <laughs> don't have leave? But you have leave, it's just not paid. Or do you not have leave? We have paid leave
7: through our employment arraig- arrangements. But so it's, yeah,
6: it's, not, it's not guaranteed. Yeah. And it's
7: so if you work in an occupation where you have a strong award and there is paid leave built into that award, you will get paid leave.
3: And is the US... It depends on the employer as well. Well, there's a, a, a federal law, the Family and Medical Leave Act, which um, provides, as I recall, 12 weeks of unpaid, because paid is unthinkable at this point, apparently, um, paid, uh, unpaid leave um, for one or other parents. So it's for birth, adoption, um, illness of a family member, um, and I think it starts at businesses of 50 employees or up. Um, and it's enforceable by law, and your position is safe for you. So you can go away for as much as 12 weeks and you can come back to your same job. And if it's not there, then you can litigate.
6: Now, if you got paid maternal leave, would, they, would, op- would conservatives call it socialised maternity?
3: <laughs> well, <you know laughs> let me okay, also like, just... Would
6: there be this enormous <laughs> campaign of, oh, my God, we can't pay women to have children, we'll have... You know. oh, but they,
3: they would be badly positioned for that because women having children would be seen as a good thing. Yes. And so they'd be torn between those, those two competing factors. But I do want to get back to what Mary said about the marketization of everything. So there is, in fact, parental mm-hmm. paid leave for men, for women, Um, it depends on where you work. And so if you're fortunate enough to be employed in a company or at a university which will provide you with paid leave, then you have it. You lose that job, you lose that benefit. So in terms of the role of the state, the state has no role and in terms of the market, the market again advantages those who are already well positioned and it's really just pulling apart in terms of economic equality and economic inequality in this case. Um, It's usually followed rapidly by political inequality as well
7: going to suggest in the Australian case we have very low, or relatively low um, participation of mothers in the labour force, and that might somehow explain this cultural antipathy to paid maternity leave, but that's not the case in the States, not is the it? In the States. You have high participation of mothers. We have relatively
3: law. high, it's over 50%, I think, for mothers of children older than two. Oh, and then okay. that's been a relative yeah. change in the last, what, decade, decade and a half. But to the
4: children. Who looks yeah. We talked about this earlier, really the grandmothers. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
4: well, no, but there's privatized child care. Yes.
3: There's privatized child care. I mean, those who have money who can afford it
4: buy childcare. But Mary, I'm sorry. I was just going to make one notation about your reference to socialism, which is the closest we came to real federal commitment to sort of uh, family support was in the early 1970s when um, Nixon almost signed a child care bill. And um, he was criticized for doing it, it be, that he was going to transform the United States into a socialist country. <laughs> <And they were laughs> we'll take vulnerable. some
2: questions from the floor. This lady just here, hello. Come forward. Oh. Hi. Hi. How
9: are you,
10: Lisa? Good.
2: Bring the mic just to p- oh, tilt the mic down yes. towards Look, you. I'm and... sorry. I'm no, mad. no, just the
9: mic itself. Don't worry about okay. that. Yeah, I that'll be. I blame my parents. Um, hello. I just want to. Um, Ask a question, and I'm repeating the statistics from memory, so if I'm slightly wrong, don't all leap on me at once. But as I understand it, Australia is number one in the OECD for girls' participation and achievement in education, which is pretty amazing. But when we go to the workplace, they're 50th. We're 50th in terms of women's achievement and participation in the workplace, which means something really fundamental is going on between education getting degrees, et cetera, mm, mm. and getting into um, the commercial world mm. and all parts of um, work. What I worry about is that we're telling young women in schools, particularly perhaps in single-sex girls' schools, that the world's there always so they can do whatever they like. And then they get out into the workforce, and because the word feminism's been taken away from them, they find they're not getting the opportunities that they were promised they'd get, that the good assignments are going to the boy next to them, or the young man next to them, And instead of saying there's something systemic going on, a lot of them are going, it's me. I'm not good enough. And they're internalizing the rejection that is in the system. And that's one of the reasons I believe feminism is a terribly important word. But I'd love some comments from the panel on that. Thank thank you. you. Mary,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Mary, we'll give that to you, because we talked about it. It was very interesting before we came on. I think it's
4: (laughs) such a serious point. And the example I would give of the way in which I think it, it affects large numbers of young women who ought to, you know, ought to, this ought to be the moment of great empowerment for them. There was a study done at Duke University about, you know, what, what, is a, what does it mean to be a woman a student, a co-ed at Duke University? And, and what women said is, well, you have to be very successful as an academic, as a student. And you not only have to be successful as a student, you have to be a good athlete. Not only do you have to be successful as a student and a good athlete, but you also have to be very social and, and convivial among your friends. And the list went on and on. And one person who was interviewed about this said, at the very end of this long uh, list, she said, and you have to be effortlessly perfect. And um, when I talk about that to my students, that everybody's head nods. And so you know, I think they're exactly, you're exactly right that people have individualized um, their aspirations, their competencies, and that's going to be a very serious problem—a source, I think, of enormous anxiety as young women go into the workforce. They start to have children, and they feel like it's totally up to them. Mm.
2: Mm. Is and uh, is there anything from the Australians that we any any research that you're doing? Um,
6: I suppose the the one manifestation in the, the research I did on Gen Y was that the women I talked to said, um, a lot of them said to me. I'm, my, success in my life is assured until I have children, which is why I need to put everything I possibly can into my 20s and just, just basically try and get as much as I possibly can done, and then magically somebody will come, I will get pregnant at 30 no. <laughs> and quickly have two children. Um, and one girl said to me very clearly, children are the glass ceiling. So there's, that's not only true, there's a, I think for some of the women I talk to, a recognition of that pressure and how unrealistic... Um, but they live with it daily. Fiona in the
2: UK would you say it's across the board? The same sort of thing?
5: Yes I think perhaps so and I think also there's still quite a lack of awareness amongst you know if I think of the, the young women students that I have um, they're not really aware that they're going to be affected by the pay gap um, so if you like the, the kinds of issues that they're interested in and, and that, that sort of press their buttons in terms of of feminist issues would be things like violence against women, sexual harassment, yeah. objectification of women, commercialisation of uh, of sex, and, and so on. Because they're the issues that seem to be that affect them, that they've got a connection with. They're not interested in issues around equal pay or even work-life balance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think there are kind of a set of issues, depending on. The, the stage of life that you're at. And a total lack of awareness, for example, there was um, a study done by at Society, um, and they found that something like 70% of the young women they talked to had not appreciated that public sector cuts, the kind of public sector cuts we're going to have, whoever um, um, returns to power after the general election, will disproportionately affect women. Because they don't realise things like women make up uh, the vast majority of the public sector workforce, including the professions in the public sector. Uh, and they don't quite realise that because women still do the majority of caring, they're also going to be affected as service users. So there is, I think, still a, a case in which... I don't know. I remember when I was 18, you know, and that was just after the, the Equal Pay Act, I thought it was solved. You know, I thought, you know, yeah. oh, no, we've got, we've got equality. And I think there's still that... That, that kind of sense at some level nowadays.
2: Yes, hello. Um,
11: I think my question's quite broad, but basically we've heard a lot, we've spoken a lot about where women have come from, where we're at today, and the struggles that we do face today. But I guess my question is, where do we go from here? What is the future for women? What should we be doing um, to make those changes that we would all like to see?
2: Who would like to see? take that on it's a big one <laughs> sorry
3: well, let me start with the list and then I, everyone can chime in so we should be running for office we should be um, continuing to seek employment we should be doing as much sport as possible um, <laughs> effortlessly
2: not effortless, you know
3: and uh, I don't want to say effort I don't mean that everyone has to do this all the time, but I will say one of the, to to backtrack just a little, one of the the remarkable achievements in the United States was the passage of Title IX, which included equality in in women's sports and educational institutions funded by the state. And that has made a huge change in women's lives in the United States. how we think about our bodies, how healthy we are, what's available to us, the capacity to, to, to function on sports teams and to carry that into university and to carry that um, beyond, that's been a huge, huge change. And it's been a change since the 1950s. So just very briefly, my grandmother, who was born in 1908 or something, um, 1904, played on an intercity basketball team when she was a young woman out of high school. This was common in the United States for women to be in sport in that generation and the subsequent generation. There was no sport in my family um, until I went to high school, but my sisters went to a different high school and there was no sport for them. This is a big change, it seems to me, and I think we should um, value and celebrate that. Absolutely insistence in continuing the fight in the U.S. at least for reproductive rights, including access to safe, healthy, free, I would like, abortion um, and reproductive um, uh, capacity. I think that's really, really important in the absence of autonomy. These are not the decisions you want the state to be making for you. Um, I I fear a looming battle in the states um, Mm -hmm. on this one, heralded by Gonzales versus Carhart and Gonzales versus Planned Parenthood, a recent Supreme Court case in which Anthony Kennedy writing for the very bare majority um, Said that he had been troubled by women who had regretted having abortions and that the decision in, in, in this case restricting um, access to a particular medical procedure was basically necessary because women couldn't be trusted to make decisions that they wouldn't later regret, and this, this is just the the road back to dependency being seen as subordinate and only attached to someone else and not full citizens. So that's another area in which I think it's important. Um, and I think also just to celebrate, you know, just remarkable women here in Australia and in Britain, and also I'll claim in the U.S. And here's one of them for Australia, oh, right. and many others I'm sure in the audience and here on the stage. So just a few things.
2: Good. We haven't even talked about women in the Obama administration or feminism but we'll, <laughs> we'll keep going. What do you think we need to do
4: in the future or moving forward, I think one thing we urgently need to do and we can do, which is not the same thing, is to think very broadly about what feminism means. I'm working on issues about incarceration in the United States right now and I'm working in a parole office. And um, men, mostly African-American men in this particular city, are coming out of prison with huge child support obligations, which they can't pay because they don't have the jobs, and they weren't able to earn while they were in prison. The most important issue for women with children among the African-American multiple communities is that many men should be able to earn money. That's a feminist issue. And I think we do have to think in it's slightly different and much broader ways than we've been used to thinking about what feminism means.
7: Mm-hmm. I'd like to say, I think um, what feminists can do begins here, you know, people are, this event would not have been on five years ago. Uh, some of the conferences that are coming up, some of the activities that young feminists and many feminists are in, engaged in in Australia Um, really um, disappeared, and it's really important to remember that we've just come through 15 years of a very conservative, repressive kind of era in Australia. At the same time, there's been quite a masculinist backlash against uh, the kinds of issues that feminists and women have raised, you know, and uh, we've been presented with ideas uh, of men's disadvantage, which has made us have to really rethink um, what equality means. So I, I have a strong sense that um, there, there is a movement abroad and that we will start to see quite a lot of lobbying and activism around important issues in Australia.
6: I'd very quickly say I think that um, I would like to see full political and legal rights for gay women. Um, you might be heterosexual, you might not know any gay women, but I think it's um, it's important that we need to be part of that fight. I think that we also need to support Indigenous women to the extent that we can in their desire to empower their communities, and that's a huge challenge. It's a huge moral challenge for every Australian. Mm. And I think that we also need to perhaps be a little bit uh, more vociferous or kind of Our voices need to be stronger in this current, I would almost call it, moral panic about um, fertility in this country. We keep being told we have to have three or four children for the future tax base and for the country. And I think we know that three or four children isn't um, that easy and we need to be a little bit more careful about... I think that entire obsession about having children is overwhelming us and we need to inject a bit of um, scepticism into that debate.
5: Um, final word isn't always very easy is it I I think that we should do what feminism does rather well which is to continue to ask really awkward questions (laughs) uh, to continue to speak uncomfortable truths um, to reclaim the language which allows us to to see things as uh, systemic uh, rather than uh, individual choice uh, and so on I think we should continue to laugh at that which is ridiculous and not to laugh at things that aren't funny. Um, (laughs) And finally, I think that the message should get out that there are very many more creative ways to be a bad girl than dancing around in your underwear. Hi, I have two questions. The first one is for um, the two American scholars. Uh, Do you really think that American people are well well prepared to accept a female president? And the second one is for all of you. Um, Do you think the countries like Islamic States,
11: they are prepared to have a sort of women president or prime minister or women leader?
4: question.
11: (laughs)
3: to answer the second first, I'm I'm not quite sure what you mean by Islamist, but Bangladesh has had a a female governing head of state. Um, Pakistan has, and actually two in Bangladesh. Uh, Pakistan has had, um, Turkey has had um, a female prime minister. So they're well ahead of the U.S. um, in regard to women at the executive level. The poll data has shown um, for the last 15, 20 years, um, 80 to 90% um, willing to support a woman for president, uh, indicating lack of prejudice. Um, and I do think we're, we're, we're ready, so let, let me just give my little wrap about this, which Mary encouraged me to do. So um, I believe that George W. Bush did a favor, actually, to, com- to competition at the national level for women, and I call it losing the masculine advantage. LAUGHTER Clearly, I don't need to explain this. There's, <laughs> there's nothing special anymore about just being a man governing because we've had such... You know, just let me cut loose here. No. <laughs> he did such a bad job. He did such a bad job. Um, it, it dismissed every incumbent Republican at the state level in my state in 2006. It changed um, Congress and it obviously created a wonderful platform for both Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin. Um, when you set that bar so low, it's no <laughs> longer attached to gender. Um, so I think, I, I think we are ready, but I don't think it's about the American people, I think it's about the political system, the electoral system and the party system, and those are two big structural impediments um, about which I could talk endlessly and I won't, but I think it's less the American people than right now the mechanism through which that has to happen.
1: Yes, hello. firstly
12: I would just like to say that the thing I never thought I would walk away with tonight was a renewed appreciation of George W Bush um, so thank you for that but I actually have a, a comment and a question and my comment is that my mum considered herself a feminist I'm not sure if I think that she succeeded in that but I you know and I sort of gained a great understanding of of feminism from her and like felt the need to empower women but I would never claim the title myself not because it's something that I'm embarrassed or ashamed about or don't want the stigma but because I don't feel like I ever worked hard enough or that my generation ever worked hard enough to be able to claim that because I don't think that we knew how to fight because I think we were then given this thing where you know I went to a single sex school or girls school where we were always taught it was special because we were women we were special because we were women whereas my family in New York who I've just spent the last two and a half years with never got that both their parents worked only my dad worked and for most of my friends families it was similar and if their parents did work their mum did work they had nannies There was no stay-at-home dad. But with my family in the US, some men stayed at home. Um, Both parents worked in every single family, and the kids all went to co-ed schools where they just learnt to fight along with the boys. They weren't special, they weren't different. So when it then went on to go into the workforce, that sort of continued, whereas I feel like that's kind of the difference between America and Australia, which is I think my question is that it's... Why why do we have that? Well, you know, like there's so many single sex schools here where women are empowered, but then when it goes into the real world, that's not the case as much as I think it might be in the US. And we have better healthcare and everything, but in the US, as far as my experience is, everybody assumes that there's going to be camps for kids in the holidays, and that's where they go. Whereas here, you know, like so both parents are free to work. Whereas here we have all the health care and mums can take some time off work, but then it comes to holidays and they've got to be around to look after their kids if they can't. You know, afford a full-time nanny. So I guess my question is, like, how do you guys feel? Sorry, this is so elaborate. I just don't know how to get it out. But um, how do you guys feel in terms of Australia versus American feminism? I guess my question is, I feel like we're really far behind, and I just wonder if you guys feel the same way, and if so, why, or why not? I'm sure you wouldn't say we're far
2: behind. Diplomatic than that.
8: What was interesting
3: in our discussion... more women in your national legislature than we do.
2: In our our discussion um, (laughs) before we came on, it was interesting where I thought also that America... And then we'd find that there were pockets where we were ahead in some ways and yet behind in others. There were... it, it, It moves in different ways and I'm, I mean part of that also I wonder is we're dealing with a, a different beast in terms of the men that we're dealing with uh, is that
6: you know also an issue I want culturally we've got different just things. make one point you made you made a really interesting point and I got what you were trying to say yeah. which is that you felt you couldn't call yourself a feminist because you felt you hadn't struggled hard like gone on a hunger strike for the women's vote or whatever. <laughs> um, and I get what you're trying to say, but I'm, like, I've had a pretty, compared to a lot of women in Australia I've had a pretty easy life, and I just call myself a feminist because I commit myself not necessarily to anything in my life being better, but to the lives of Australian women being better. So, I think you can comfortably call yourself like, you don't have to chain yourself to a horse to call yourself a feminist, that's what i <laughs>
3: And maybe that calling yourself a feminist will introduce you to a whole range of struggle that you don't haven't yet had to deal with. <laughs> Open the
2: door. <laughs> right,
7: would you like to? Anyone like to comment, um, to I think it is interesting the point that you make about the difference between the U.S. and That'd Australia, uh, and it's something I think I've kept asking you. But in the U.S., lots of women work, and in the U.S., this because there are very different things around what uh, men and women do in particular in relation to childcare and bringing up children. So I think your point is correct. If you grew up in Australia or you grew up in the US, you would have a very, very different experience of parenting uh, and parental involvement. And I think researchers in Australia have been struck by how little discourses around motherhood have changed in Australia, even though we've had changes in all these other areas. And I think it's really something we probably need to start thinking about is um, the relationship between the way we understand what mothers are and what mothers should do, and other forms of inequality. And feminism. Thank you.
3: Hi,
8: um, Rebecca. Um, I marched in the 70s as well, and I can assure you, uh, I'm marching in. I, I'm still marching in 2010. Um, <laughs> My question is about women in positions of authority and power and, obviously, the the symbolic uh, value of that, which was, I think, Rebecca who made reference to that. Obviously, there is a symbolic value, but what what kind of uh, cultural um, values uh, should feminists, and I say feminists as opposed to just women be pushing in for the kinds of institutional changes, systemic and institutional changes we need to address the question that I think Jane initially asked of the panel because there's clearly a difference between simply having a woman leader and I I suppose Sarah Palin and Margaret Thatcher have been the the rather um, unfortunate examples that have been used um, this evening but what is it that we should be doing as feminists to change things systemically, workplaces and institutions?
2: That's a big question. Who would like to take a shot at that one?
7: One example I can think of in Australia at the moment is the Women for Wick uh, network of feminists and other women joining together to campaign and lobby against the Northern Territory intervention into Aboriginal communities. And that seems a very grassroots campaign, which involves sharing information, discussing issues, um, and uh, lobbying and campaigning, but also intervening through submissions and, and policy processes. Around all of the um, uh, legislation and policies around the Northern Territory intervention. But it's Jenny Macklin that is leading that intervention. Oh. The
1: law <laughs> is being changed, the Racial Discrimination Act is being addressed no. and we're going to have that. So I'm talking yeah. about
8: institutional and cultural
1: values. Mm.
2: So I'm wondering—it's—it's almost a question. Do we almost have? Do we have to um, uh, not assume that every woman who gets into a position of power is a feminist? In that, would you have to treat every person as an individual and see if you can change that person, whether they are a woman or a man? Is that—is that? Are we assuming that women who get into power are feminists and are interested in women's issues when they may well just be, someone like Sarah Palin
6: wanting to prove that she is one of the guys?
2: I suppose
6: it's a a really important question but it's a very broad one and I suppose I I can't think of any rules that would cross every institutional context. So I think about the one institution I had some experience with for a a decade, which was the Labor Party. What would bring about (laughs) um, (laughs) institutional change in the ALP? And I think that the thing that would bring about institutional change is knocking down as much as possible the factional power a very small group of men who still continue to control who gets pre-selected and who doesn't. I used to joke to my ex-boss that um, there's no reason why they couldn't have all their important meetings in a men's neuronal. (laughs) And in fact, they traditionally (laughs) did. Um, And I suppose one important part of that is it's still... There are lots of extraordinarily capable women in... The Labor Party, some of them are doing well, some of them should be doing better, Um, but it constantly surprises me the extent to which they acquiesce to some of the worst behaviour of men, and I think it just means that they need to, um, I think it's a whole new capacity to change. There's some institutional changes that could happen in the Labor Party, weakening the power of particular kinds of male-dominated unions that still get to choose who gets pre-selected, but I mean, I'm not—I'm not being about politics. I know it's still going to be a leadership group that are going to make decisions. But I think there are certain institutional cha- things that you can change to make that group more transparent, make them more accountable, and make them—you um, know—less narrow and and um, less focused on on power building, really, as you know, as the only raison d'être of
5: kind of politics. So that's what I would say within that context. Fiona. I think it's also helpful if, if feminists can identify and play a leadership role when they see ins- new institutions in the making, um, to, to mobilise coalitions to ensure that at the stage of institutional design, we aren't seeing traditional masculinity built in with the bricks, but we're having a kind of a more inclusive uh, institution in the making. So thinking about the UK and devolution, for example. Um, the creation of the Scottish Parliament, um, there was a very kind of self-conscious mobilisation of feminists and the wider women's movement, all sorts of different sorts of groups, to, if you like, ensure that there would be the representation of women in terms of higher numbers of uh, women MSPs, but also a sense of uh, a greater substantive representation in terms of trying to build structures in which there would be a more inclusive idea of politics, sort of newer ideas of politics, and in which it would be more likely that a kind of broader political agenda, including those issues that are traditionally thought of as women's issues, would be more likely to take centre stage, would be more likely to result uh, in outcomes. And in a very kind of simple way, some of the things that, that happened In Scotland, and Scotland is not a country that culturally would immediately come to the the top of your list of,
2: um, women friendly. You
5: know, uh, know, we're better known for Braveheart, aren't we? uh, Sean Connery. Um, But there were things like a real attempt to make the political parties rethink the job of a politician. So that it was no longer seen as, as a kind of reward for being in the right faction or um, uh, a, a reward for being, you know, Secretary serving of a trade union. Yes, movement. or 25 years as as a, as a party member. So all those sorts of things uh, happened. There were quotas uh, introduced, certainly in the Labour Party, and I think that quotas do play a role in in institutional uh, change. There's uh, a crash in the Scottish Parliament for. That's great. Oh, sorry, is that how you say it in your country? Uh, so there's a kind of visitors' crash in the uh, the Scottish Parliament, which is, if you like, both a practical and a symbolic recognition that actually citizens have caring responsibilities. Um, and there are things like an equal opportunities, you know, women's policy machinery, which I know you you, you have um, anyway. Um, But a kind of real sense in which we might try and do politics a little bit differently, and I'm I'm not kind of going 100% down the road. You know, it's all touchy and feely and things. But just you know, can we change things on the margin a little bit? Can we can we do things in in a different way? Um, And the first Parliament returned 37.2% women. It went down after two (laughs) elections. Went up, went up to nearly 40%, and then went down again. And I think that also shows. I mean, just vigilance. You know that there are a lot of legacies, even in new institutions. There are, you know, a lot of path dependencies.
3: Karen. So I had to think a a little bit about that question. So culturally, I think in the United States, at least, we've we we actually have come quite a long way. And and to recur for a moment to Sarah Palin, you know, she stood up in front of people as a working woman and an elected governor of a state. Um, a woman with four children. Am I doing five children? I'm, I'm not doing the count right. With five children, um, and making no apologies about working or having children. And that was no longer seen as an anomaly. And I do think that the tension between women who don't work outside the home for pay and women who do work outside the home for pay, which was the, sort of the 1970s and 80s dichotomy, has passed. And so part of continuing continuing to insist on a citizenship that recognizes women as complete citizens, which still in the U.S. means a shift in how we think about citizenship and a shift in, um, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. So I think that that continuing, uh, continuing insistence um, that we're more than half the nation and that means that um, we need to be taken with respect and we need to be everywhere. And then there is a sense, I think, also in the States now that if, there's an institution that's only men, even the men are looking around and thinking, you know, there's something not, not right here. We need to have some women here. If only for show, we really need to do that. <laughs> and then in terms of institutional change, I think that's the big issue for the states. Our party system and our electoral system really work against um, change in terms of just personnel. The incumbency rate in the House is over ninety. It's usually over 95%, which means that people are walking straight back into the House of Representatives. And there are are years in which 10% of sitting members of the House have no opponents. I mean, it's just uh, unspeakable in a democracy. And and in the Senate, it's over 80%. Um, How we change that, I'm not sure. But I think we have to be ready, in part, for um, a car crash of the party system. And I think that's where we see the so-called Tea Party movement, pushing against the party system, um, increasing percentage. It's, it's not perhaps as dramatic as, as it's been made out, but increasing percentage of people who are no longer identified with a political party, many of whom are young people. Um, it occurs to me in the next 10 years, we might see a major change in, in the political party system and when, when that happens, um, if it happens, um, there's an opportunity for feminism to make a big difference. And perhaps it won't make a big difference but that's the kind of opportunity it seems to me that we need to look for before we even think about changing institutions um, in the hopes that that party change will raise new issues and involve new actors many of whom will be women most of whom my guess is will still be feminists
2: Now it's 8 o'clock we still have a couple of questions to go are you happy to stay and hear the questions or would you like to anyone who would like to leave can of course but we're happy to... Are you happy to keep going for your question? Two more questions.
10: Two more questions? Okay,
2: sure. <laughs> <laughs> Two more questions. Three Hi. Hi.
10: Um, I just wanted to make a comment about, uh, you know, there's legislation that suggests um, we should employ a certain amount of women and Indigenous people in certain situations. And the difference between... The, the good thing that that's a, a law and... Um, occurring and the reality where it's often just a token gesture and it's joked about in corporate areas like, oh, let's employ another woman and, oh, get an Indigenous person in as well. Um, and that's a, that's a joke. And it's um, still the attitude in small business and corporate environments that, you know, these these changes in law are taking longer to reach people's attitude and what you think about mm-hmm. that.
2: I yeah, know you had a, mentioned quotas a moment ago.
5: Would you like to start about employment quotas? Employment quotas. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I think the U.S. experience I think would be quite interesting in that respect.
10: Yeah. Okay, I mean, I think um, there's certain government legislation to do with Centrelink and getting special payments. I know in um, in small businesses, if you employ an Indigenous person, you can. You get tax breaks. Yeah, you get a lot of tax breaks, and okay. and the same if you with women. Okay, well, let's talk about the U.S. experience.
2: where it's probably more more experience in quotas in general rather than we have. Mm-hmm. It's,
4: it's well, we don't have quotas, but we have had a lot of experience with affirmative action, yeah. and there I'd say, um, don't underestimate the power of words, um, even when sometimes they're used only symbolically. That I mean, affirmative action was um, both real in certain respects, did pressure businesses, did pressure universities to hire a more diverse workforce and more diverse staff. But um, many organizations went out of their way to try to avoid some of the pressures of affirmative action. And now, actually, affirmative action has been much diluted in the courts. And yet, even though it's no, lo- there's no longer the huge pressure of law behind it, some of that pressure, some of that knowledge, those norms have been... Im- Institutionalized, internalized, and still exert some real power over how people think about it. So, you know, I wouldn't be quite so discouraged as it may as it seems to me a little bit that you sound. I think sometimes the power of words can work, you know, quite wonders. Okay.
2: Last question. Lucky last. Okay, I'll do
11: this first. I've just been handed a card uh, for the feminist bookshop. Um, so if you would like to visit them at the world's longest address they are at shop nine orange grove plaza balmain road lilyfield sydney (laughs) or feministbookshop.com um at the risk of sounding competitive uh, competitive repetitive um i'm studying vet science uh which is a highly feminized degree in my year there are 75% 75% women to 25% men, and it's a meritocracy to get in as of up until this year. So it's completely UAI-based. Yet on upon graduation, the male practitioners are likely to be paid 10 to $20,000 more than the female practitioners. And I'm just... I don't really understand. Do you think that that's as a result of women not recognising their self-worth or it's just a complete, complete result of the institution or you know because women leave to have children or I just don't understand how that can happen with you know there's 10 years this statistics these statistics have been collected and we're still being paid significantly less than our male counterparts with the same experience
2: and this is a conversation that you would have with other uh, girls who yes sitting... we're all very pissed off <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering what the reasons, that, what, what you guys, are, what reasons you guys are coming up with, is, is there or is it, I mean apart from being pissed off obviously but.
11: Um, well we thought A because people think in, in large animal practice men are stronger and also men in the country are less likely to respond to a female practitioner. And also, everybody just seems to think it's because we go and, you know, at 30, we go and pop out a baby and then work part-time for the rest of our careers.
7: Um,
3: mm. If that's true, you should be paid a lot early on. Um, If you're going to leave at 30, you should get a lot of money when you're young. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that would be just. It's it's wage discrimination. Mm. So I I do think that poses a real... I mean, obviously poses a real problem. So first of all, I mean, I don't know about Australia. That's illegal in the United States. And so there must be some uh, systemic way to address that collectively um, through a professional um, uh, female vets association. Um, Secondly, when, when wages are offered, and again, I don't know it's like in Australia, it's usually privatized and individuated, so you're face to face with an employer who makes an offer to you. You, you, There's no one there who can consult, and you have to trust that the person making the offer is providing you with full information. Often, um, I hear this all the time, including recently from my own son, whom I set straight quickly, um, the idea that, well, women aren't very good negotiators, and um, it's now my belief that what women are told in negotiation is substantially different from what men are told. And so there's an individual strategy that one has to develop as well. And you have to be brave enough um, and feel secure enough um, in that individuated situation to make um, a strong claim. I remember in one, probably the only successful wage-upping experience of my whole life, it was over the telephone and I had promised my husband a dollar amount I would ask for. And I just held the phone shaking. I wasn't face to face. And I said the amount. And they said, OK.
8: <laughs>
3: so there, there are the two things. And I see that as a real problem. But that kind of offer that's $10,000 or $20,000 less a year, let's just call that unjust salary discrimination against women. That's wrong. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for everybody for being here tonight and please thank our wonderful panel who have been so great tonight.